This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Welcome to the Carbon Connection Podcast. It's not too late to change the conversation about climate change from doom and gloom to a conversation about possibility. This podcast is a curated selection of episodes that we just had to share with you. The Carbon Connection is about the many dimensions of climate change and the conversations people are having across the globe. It's about hope, community, advocacy, science, and changing our future. Hi, this is Lori, a member of the Carbon Almanac Network. You are about to listen to Episode 5 of an eight-part mini-series called Laying Down Tracks. This series is a partnership between the UN Food Systems Summit and the podcast Sourcing Matters. The conversations are led by the host, Aaron Niederhelman. In this episode, titled Systems Resiliency, Aaron speaks with guest Nate Mook the CEO of World Central Kitchen, a not-for-profit organization devoted to providing meals in the wake of natural disasters. You will hear Nate share stories of how their team comes in and takes action in the middle of a food crisis. They know what to do to get families back up on their feet, to deliver meals to schools to get them back up and running, and ultimately to start a domino effect of hope and progress within impacted communities. The World Central Kitchen team looks at the situation on a human level to understand what's going on, start small, and then scale up what works in that community. There's much to be learned from this podcast, and I hope you enjoy listening just as much as I did. Sourcing Matters Podcast. This is your host, Aaron Niederhelman, sharing stories of our food. Welcome back to Sourcing Matters. This is your host, Aaron Niederhelman. In collaboration with the United Nations Food System Summit, we've been chatting up global leaders in food, its production, and those focused on stabilizing the planet. For this eight-part series called Laying Down Tracks, we've aligned the subject matter of our conversations with those of the UN Summit's action tracks. Today, for our fifth episode in the miniseries, we're looking at action track number five, dedicated to system resilience. Well, I can't think of a better way to kick off our conversation about food system resilience and what's needed for an immediate response to challenges and impact than speaking with our guests today. Joining as guests for Laying Down Tracks, episode number five, is the CEO of World Central Kitchen, Nate Mook. Hey, Nate, how you doing? Doing well, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time out. You have a very busy schedule. You've just returned from, from India, uh, lending hand in India. Maybe you could start there and share with our listening audience what you're up to with uh, what well in India and what, what the World Central Kitchen's doing. Yeah, of course. So, you know, World Central Kitchen, we're, we're a nonprofit um, based in the United States. Uh, I'm in Washington, D.C. right now. 
Uh, but we work uh, all over the globe. And we were founded by a chef uh, named Jose Andres. Uh, and uh, Jose founded the organization in the aftermath of the, the big earthquake, the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, as he looked at a lot of the challenges that Haiti was facing around food uh, related to the environment in terms of deforestation and lack of farmable land because of that, soil erosion, uh, dirty cooking. So, you know, using dirty fuels like wood and charcoal uh, to cook with and, and really looking at it through the lens of a chef and an expert in the culinary industry. How can people that know food the best start to participate in identifying solutions to some of the challenges that the world faces around food, both long-term issues like clean cooking, but also sort of short-term, uh, you know, crisis response. How can we get fresh, healthy, nutritious food to folks in a time when, you know, a community is facing uh, an acute disaster? Uh, and that's really, you know, what World Central Kitchen's work has has been about since since its founding. And, um, you know, it's 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 a bit unique um, in the way that sort of look you're looking at it maybe more from a private sector lens than a traditional sort of international development lens. But you know, the way that we sort of like to talk about it is, you know, when you have a a medical crisis around the world, you know, who would you send? Well, of course, you send doctors and nurses and folks who you know who can practice medicine. And yet when it comes to food crises around the world, we're not often sending people who know food the best, right? The chefs, the cooks, the, 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 the folks who understand supply chain and, and all of that and make sure that we can develop solutions that really make sense for the communities in which we're trying to serve. So this is what World Central Kitchen sets out to do. We, we have both uh, sort of our emergency, acute emergency response work where we go in immediately after in the middle of a disaster to support communities. And then we also have our long-term resilience work where we look at really building up long-term food security uh, in places many times that we've operated in an emergency. So 2020 was quite a crazy year for us and I think for everybody in terms of the COVID pandemic. World Central Kitchen had to adapt its model to see how to support you know, what, what started as a health crisis around the world that became an economic crisis that then you know, evolved into a hunger and humanitarian crisis. You know, families didn't have enough money to feed themselves. Uh, we had supply chain issues across the board. You had excess capacity in some areas where farmers and uh, ranchers and, and dairies were dumping their products mm. because they had no one to sell them to. And then on, on other parts of the country or in other parts of the world, you had folks who didn't have enough to eat. Um, and it was this complete disconnect. So World Central Kitchen, you know, we've jumped into action during the pandemic. We served uh, about close to 40 million meals last year uh, in response, fresh meals, fresh prepared meals. It's what World Central Kitchen does, um, sort of a, a counterpart to maybe what, what some folks might be familiar with, with the World Food Program, which delivers, you know, dry staples and dry goods in a lot of places. You know, we're preparing and distributing fresh, healthy, prepared meals. And so, you know, we've we had to shift a lot of our work in 2020 where we're working in places, you know, that traditionally were not as food insecure because now you had a humanitarian crisis. You had this disaster that was everywhere uh, around the world and especially in the United States. 
And in early 2021, just a couple of months ago, we started to see things spiking in India. Hmm. Um, COVID was rising out of control. You know, they were seeing 400,000 new cases a day. And that's just what was reported, 4,000 plus deaths a day. And again, that's just what was official numbers. And so World Central Kitchen, we said, okay, what can we do to support? How can we step in? And we partnered with a, a local chef named Sanjeev Kapoor in India, who's has a huge following and, and a lot of connections. And within 24 hours, we had kitchens up and running. We were supporting the hospitals that were serving COVID patients that were overwhelmed with COVID patients and the doctors and the nurses and the security staff and the technicians and everybody at these hospitals that were working really long hours. So not your traditional sort of, um, you know, communities that face hunger and food insecurity on a normal situation. But because of the pandemic, we started to see all of these other folks that were facing this type of, of need. And so so that's we've we've served over half a million now fresh meals in India in the last couple of weeks. We're active in 17 cities across the country. And so I went out there with with uh, Jose Andres and we, we traveled around to a number of, of our kitchens and cities and partners and um, really getting a sense of the lay of the land. But certainly this pandemic has has changed a lot about the way we think about food and food access and food equity and and you know how we need to start thinking more sustainably about about the future i'm sure it was an eye-opening experience right and and uh, every time you probably go to a new location new challenges come up you have to be nimble and agile and what i remember about all you know so many of the things that you guys have been first responders to is how essential those early meals are when people are just lost and struggling and you know whether it's covid in this circumstance or just a natural weather disaster that have, you know, intensified. Um, what kind of local response do you get from people as you come on site here and you're providing these resources? Are people standoffish or have you built up enough street cred that people are ready and excited to see you? You know, it's a great question, Aaron, because I think it's very important with our work that we're not seen and we don't act as an organization that sort of is parachuting in from the outside. And like, we're not coming in and saying, hey, we've got all these answers, we're coming to, you know, to save you. That's, that's really not how we operate. In fact, the reason we can be so effective and efficient is because we partner hand in hand with the local communities in which we're, we're operating. Um, you know, we don't want to reinvent the wheel every time. We don't have all the answers. We don't know what folks on the ground know. Um, and so, you know, if we can tap into that knowledge, that experience, that expertise, and then bring to bear our resources, our own experience responding in acute crises, you know, it's sort of the best of both worlds because we can leverage what's already there to move much faster, right? So, you know, we don't need to bring in all the food from the outside if we can purchase locally or identify local suppliers. We don't need to bring a kitchen from the outside and build some, you know, field kitchen if there's already infrastructure already there that we can tap into and move quickly. We don't need to fly in a bunch of folks if we can put local folks to work or tap into local chefs and restaurateurs and things like that to, to move super fast in our response. So it's really at the core of what we do is engaging with and partnering with the local communities in which we serve. Now, the reality is a lot of times, you know, folks who are in are facing uh, you know, a post-disaster scenario or, you know, the pandemic, 
everybody's overwhelmed because they're also dealing with it, right? The local community is dealing with it. Either they've, they're facing their own issues around this. Let's say a cyclone comes in and damages their own house or, you know, they've got to deal with their own issues. So it's sometimes hard, even if people do want to help and get involved, it's hard to, to do that immediately. And it's also hard to, you know, you're sort of in this like post-traumatic state of you just have gone through this, this experience. So having, you know, World Central Kitchen come in and say, okay, we're going to help coordinate and organize and here are the systems and we know how to operate and we know how to do this and that. And we pull all of these things together. That provides a mechanism for that local community to plug in much more easily. So it's not, you know, okay, you're on your own, deal with it yourself. It's World Central Kitchens coming in and saying, we're here to work hand in hand with you to make sure that everybody can get a plate of food. And the result is, is amazing. You know, I think what we've seen is, uh, you know, local communities really stepping up to the plate playing a, a you know a critical role in the recovery you're absolutely right that it is so important to move quickly in the aftermath of a disaster because you can start to have all of these add-on consequences and the longer it takes to stabilize the longer it's going to take to recover and so we saw this in 2019 for example two big cyclones hit Mozambique wiped out a lot of farmland um, wiped out entire villages communities about 1,500 people officially were killed, um, and a lot of folks, a lot of families ended up in uh, these accommodation centers, sort of, you know, refugee-type camps uh, because their homes were damaged or destroyed, and so we were able to move quickly, get a kitchen up and running, working with and hiring the folks in the local community, working with local suppliers, buying from local farmers, started to prepare fresh, healthy, nutritious meals, Families were able to get a little bit back up on their feet so they could focus on some of the recovery and the rebuilding. They didn't have to worry about where their next meal was going to come from. We started to deliver meals to schools. So then the kids would go back to the schools because their families wanted them to get a meal. So then the schools started to get going again. And you start to see this domino effect happen with food, right? Food does not exist in a bubble. Food is connected to everything. Food is connected to our, our own health. It's connected to education. It's connected to, of course, the environment. Um, and so once you start to, you know, I think, uh, you know, you start to work on the food piece, some of the other things start to come into play. Mozambique also faced a, a health crisis after these, these uh, cyclones, as cholera began to spread because of the dirty water. And so because we could tightly control the preparation of food, that was a really critical piece of keeping cholera under control in the, the camps that had been set up for those that were displaced. We could make sure that things were clean. We had sanitation stations we set up and we could, we could stop the spread of cholera that you know really could have tremendous damage as we've seen in places like Haiti in the past. And so again, you know, food is at the center of this. So, you know, all in, I think, you know, we wouldn't be able to do what we do without the local communities in which we work. Step one is always talking to those on the ground uh, and asking them what they need. Uh, you know, Jose Andres, our founder, always says, you know, we have to lead with empathy. Everything starts with empathy. It's not about showing up with a plan, a solution, and we have all the answers. It's showing up and saying, 
I'm here to help you. You tell me what you need. You tell me how I can support you. You know, it's, it's really about your needs, not what I think the answers are. And so that's how we try to do all of our work moving forward. Um, you know, anywhere in the world, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty universal. Yeah. A bit, a bit more here. And I think for our listening audience, I think you, you covered it. It's so true. The empathetic approach to it, that perspective that you all bring to this, that practice of, of being there to listen and work in partnership. Um, you know, I think those things come with an idea, but they come by getting your hands dirty and just doing it. Or as I think, um, Jose Andres says, just start cooking, right? Working with people on, on that side. Uh, but since the founding, the World Central Kitchen has organized meals in Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, uh, Zambia, Peru, Cuba, Uganda, the Bahamas, Cambodia, the United States, and as you mentioned, uh, Mozambique and, and now India. Um, I most remember your efforts in Haiti, earth, the Haiti earthquake, and then obviously what happened here stateside with Puerto Rico and, and kind of the, mm-hmm. the your response to the debacle of Hurricane Maria that um, you guys swooped in and picked up the pieces for the U.S. federal government. It was just kind of jaw dropping, and uh, I was we were all awestruck by what what was created there. Um, I'm sure depending on where you're in the world, you know, you have different engagement with, with World Central Kitchen. But I wanted to ask you, Nate, you know, your boots on the ground approach, as we said, that just start cooking and, and listening and being empathetic is, is simply amazing results and essential for, for those that are impacted. Um, I understand, as you said, that you led the World Central Kitchen's relief efforts in Puerto Rico after Maria in September of yeah. 2017. What if you could share with our audience some of your personal experience in answering the bell? being on the front lines here, being the helping hand with that warm meal. And, and as you know, as talking about letting people just get their feet below them in these catastrophic situations where sometimes you can't even catch your breath. It's really, really challenging. Um, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in post-disaster zones over the past few years um, and, and before that as well, but, but with world central kitchen, you know, really starting in, in Puerto Rico and, you know, Jose and I landed on the ground in Puerto Rico. We didn't have an agenda. We didn't know what the situation was going to be. You know, we weren't, um, you know, we weren't showing up with some grandiose vision for that we were going to serve 4 million meals on the island. Um, you know, we really just showed up. I only brought, I think, two pairs of underwear. I thought I was going to be there for maybe three to four days maximum. It was like, you know, we flew out on Sunday. I thought I'd be home by Thursday. Um, you know, ended up staying there for, for a couple of months. Uh, and World Central Kitchen was there for for many many months serving, and you know I think a couple of things that that really stand out to me is you you have to be on the ground with the people to really understand what the circumstances are. You know, you if you're trying to make decisions about how to best support, um, how to get food to folks that need it. Uh, you can't do that in, uh, you know, some office building somewhere, some headquarters or in front of a computer, you know, you have to be out really putting eyes on the situation. And so that's really uh, the first critical step with all of World Central Kitchen's work is we have to understand what's going on on the ground. We have to get the situational awareness, talk to people, see where both where the resources are, where the needs are, where are there gaps that need to be filled, what are other folks doing to support so we're not duplicative. And it's all of those things sort of coming together that that make it possible to, to do this work. You know, when when I landed in, in Puerto Rico and we started to, to, uh, to prepare meals, 
you know, we step one was actually we were trying to go in and just find out who is already in charge of food. And what we realized very quickly was that nobody was really in charge because kind of everybody was in charge. And because of that, there was no real, um, you know, centralized action or coordination or understanding of what the needs were and, and what was going on. And so there was almost this paralysis of we have this huge problem. We need to feed all these people and nobody is really sort of the general, so to speak of, of how you feed people. And every, it was just like talking in circles. And, and so, you know, Jose and I just said, well, you know, we don't have time for this. We're just going to get out. We, we called a friend, Jose Enrique at a restaurant in the center of San Juan. And we, he said, he said, yeah, I've, I've been cooking soup, the Sancocho, uh, for the local community, for a couple hundred people here. And we said, well, let's start there. Let's, you're already cooking. You've got, you've got a generator, you've got this restaurant space, you know, we'll find the water, we'll find more generators. We'll start, we'll start expanding the operation. But, you know, one of the key things is, is you start small, you just start with what you can do. And then you scale it up from there. I mean, day one, we were cooking 500 meals a day, quickly moved to a thousand 2,000, 4,000, 10,000. Before you know it, we're cooking 150,000 fresh meals a day and delivering them across the island. You know, this is, you don't go in from day one trying to do everything. You just got to start somewhere and then you start to build up because you, you're going to learn in the process. And so that's really, you know, I think key to, to what we do. The other thing is that food too often is seen as a commodity. It's seen as a, you know, an object. Um, And so, you know, when you think about, when people think about, okay, we need to get food into places, it's seen as a logistics problem. It's not seen as a food or hunger problem. Uh, It's about moving goods from one place to the other. And certainly logistics plays an important role in getting food to those that need it. But when you strictly look at it as a uh, logistics problem, you really miss out on the importance of food and what food does. And what I mean by that is food delivers nourishment, both for the body, but also for the soul, right? And so one of the things that I've, I've had the opportunity to see firsthand from places you know, like Puerto Rico to the Bahamas after Hurricane Dorian to Guatemala after the volcano eruption, um, you know, to Mozambique after the cyclones is you see there's, there's something universal about a plate of food, handing somebody a warm plate of food, sharing a plate of food with somebody is a message of hope. It's a message that, you know, somebody prepared this meal thinking about you This is not, you know, just something trucked out of a warehouse that's shelf stable and, you know, is dumped on, you know, you just so you can have some calories to survive. No, like a fresh nourishing plate of food is is symbolic. And so it uplifts spirits. It makes people feel like things are going to get better. It also helps at a time when they need that boost, that, 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 that nutritional boost to their systems because they've just gone through this traumatic event. And so it's so important to have fresh, healthy, nutritious meals. And then in the process, again, you're, you're able to uplift the local community in the process. If you just, if you just look at food as the logistics issue and just you know flying things in from some centralized warehouse somewhere, you have the, you have the, uh, potential to do tremendous damage 
to a local economy. You know, we saw this in Haiti after the earthquake where tons and tons and tons of rice were dumped into Haiti, especially from the United States. Haiti, a couple of years ago, Haiti was the number two importer of U.S. rice after Mexico. And Haiti's one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere, and yet is the number two importer of U.S. rice. And the reason that is, is because uh, of all of the rice that's given for free from the aid agencies and other groups to, to Haitians. And you might be thinking, oh, well, that's great. You know, they're giving a lot of rice. That's really important. The problem is you end up destroying the local market for Haitian rice. So the Haitian farmers that are, that are growing rice can't compete with all this free stuff coming in. So you end up doing tremendous long-term damage if you're not careful in the way that you're trying to quote unquote or help folks, you know, in the event of a hunger crisis. So again, I think it's about really looking at and understanding, looking at it on the human level. What do you need? You know, not just, you know, calories to help you survive, but actually nourishing food that uplifts the spirits, that makes makes it easier for and and speeds that recovery up. Um, and that's really what we try to focus on, you know, and, and it can be done. You know, I think for a long time, people considered that it was just too hard, right? How do you prepare hundreds of thousands of meals somewhere, fresh, healthy, hot meals somewhere? You know, it's just complexity. It just seems impossible. And so it's much easier to do things like in the United States, like in Puerto Rico, where we just trucked in MREs, these meals ready to eat, these prepackaged monstrosities that really are only suitable for our for our servicemen and women in combat when they have no other choice. And yet our federal government stockpiles millions of MREs that get deployed after hurricanes and other types of disasters in the US. Nobody should be eating these things. So again, you know, we just need to get away from the old way of doing things. We've shown that it is possible, that it is possible to deliver fresh, healthy, nutritious meals, do it sustainably, do it smartly, think about the local food systems that you're impacting in the process, and look at food as a way to uplift a lot of different sectors simultaneously, not just, you know, getting food into bellies. I love it. I mean, it's, um, you're right, food delivers nourishment for body and soul, and um, boy, it can give you a whole different perspective on things when you get that good, fresh, nourishing meal. But in, in you know, you said, oh, gosh, we think it's too hard. It is so hard. I can imagine what you guys are, I mean, when you think of these initial humanitarian responses, I think of Red Cross and White Helmets, the UN's White Helmets, and, you know, the, the kind of first responders here. You found almost this fundamental thing of food system, food, required food and nourishment was being overlooked <laughs> and came in and solved this problem. And I, I mean, I, I just give you kudos, I guess, in saying that I don't, I'm just still a little bit awestruck by how, how impressive that is that, um, that has not been done before. And to your point, uh, it's a new way of thinking, a new world order that needs to be addressed. Well, I wouldn't say we solved it. I don't want to get ahead of myself. I think that we're 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 showing uh, a little bit of the way, and I, and I hope that our work, World Central Kitchen's work, can start to shift the larger systems of of how this type of response is done and how we think about food more broadly. Um, but you know, there's there's certainly still a lot of work to do. We're we we have not fully uh, you know we we ha we haven't solved everything, and you know, every day brings new challenges because 
of climate change. We're seeing larger disasters. You know, 2019 saw the biggest hurricane on record ever in the Atlantic that destroyed an entire island in the Bahamas. Um, You're seeing wildfires all throughout California and in the Amazon. You're seeing typhoons and cyclones in India and the Philippines and places like Mozambique that you would never, you know, expect two category five cyclones to hit, uh, you know, almost back to back. So, you know, there is a, a tremendous growing need for thinking about the resilience and the sustainability of food systems because of the way that the climate is shifting. And so, you know, we, we have to start being proactive. Of course, you, you know, you're always going to have to respond in the moment and world central kitchen is, is always going to be there in the aftermath of, of a big, uh, you know, a big climate disaster, but, you know, we're, as we're seeing more floods and fires and, and big hurricanes and tornadoes and, and freezes, like we just saw in Texas, where, you know, the temperature dropped so much that all the water pipes broke and, all the electricity went off and you had no access to to food and refrigeration, you know, we need to really start looking at the resilience of our food systems because when it goes, um, you know, there's not a lot to turn to. And I think that's one of the things that's so shocking about the Hurricane Maria hitting Puerto Rico is, you know, they they estimate over 4,600 people died uh, in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. But what's very important about that is they didn't die in the hurricane, right? It wasn't, these are not folks whose houses blew down or they got, you know, caught in floodwaters. They died because of a lack of support in the aftermath. They had, they were out of electricity. They were out of water. They were out of food, you know, elderly folks that didn't have the ability to move or get anywhere. You know, these are preventable issues if we invest and think smartly about food and our food systems. Hmm. All right. I want to come back to the um, longer horizon here, but let me read a bit of your bio and background for our listening audience. Nate Mook is the CEO of World Central Kitchen, as we mentioned. Nate began his career as a tech entrepreneur and later worked as a documentary producer, leading film products and productions around the world for the UN, USA. USAID and um, World Bank. He produced the uh, film Baltimore Rising for HBO, and they previously developed the spearhead of the 10X events in numerous countries and was selected as a Gates Foundation change hero for his work with the TEDx Evaluating Voices in Underserved Communities. Nate began working with Jose Andreas in the World Central Kitchen in 2012, and together they produced the PBS National Geographic documentary on Haiti in 2015. Nate became the World Central Kitchen CEO in early 2018. And since then, Nate has led the organization's dramatic growth and strategic shift to its current work using food as a solution to humanitarian crisis around the world. As we talked about, one thing for sure, access to good, clean, and nutritious food is cornerstone to rolling out solutions to address humanitarian problems around the planet. So, and you started talking about this as, as more severe natural disasters spawn all over the world, all new locations in, in more frequency. What does World Central Kitchen do over the long haul? How how do you create longer term fixes? How do you get involved in the systemic change? And you know what other type of multi stakeholder initiative can you bring into this? You know, I think there's a lot of things we can do. Um, you know, I don't think we have to get dismayed that, um, you know, the problem is too big to fix. I think, you know, we have 
so many incredible technologies and innovative minds out there that even though the storms are getting bigger, the disasters are getting bigger, the climate is shifting, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done to slow that climate shift or stop that climate shift. But in the short term, you know, I, I think there's a lot that we can do. I think the first thing is, is really looking at our critical systems around food and water um, and looking at the vulnerabilities in uh the framing of a changing climate. You know, we don't need to act surprised anymore about the way things are. Uh, you know, a decade ago, a Category 5 hurricane was a once-in-a-decade occurrence. Now it's annual, multi-times, multiple times annually, a Category 5 hurricane could hit, and certainly a lot of Category 4s too. So we shouldn't be surprised that there are big hurricanes. We should just expect we're going to have some big hurricanes. We need to start preparing for this and planning for this. And it could hit here. It could hit here. We don't know where it's going to go, but we can start thinking holistically about some of the solutions to that resilience, especially around food and water, which is, you know, so, so critical. Um, I think we can also look at, you know, how to uh, make smart investments um, in advance, uh, looking at the, places where we can develop models, where we can, you know, I, I think one of the things that often um, gets lost in this, this conversation, uh, especially around disaster response, is, you know, we, we talk a lot about um, groups like World Central Kitchen and others that, that come in and, you know, you mentioned the Red Cross, you mentioned different, you know, different folks. And, you know, there, there will always be a certain element of, of support needed, of course. But in a perfect world, World Central Kitchen wouldn't exist, right? We wouldn't need to go in because that local resiliency would, would be able to handle whatever shocks to the system that there may be. Um, you know, and and one of the problems that we really have to sort of face and, and address and, and recognize is that, you know, in this globalized world that we live in, which of course is wonderful. I mean, we're we can trade goods all across the world, you know, with with the snap of a finger. You can get things delivered to your front door same day. We can, you know, we live in a world where it doesn't even matter where things necessarily are made because. We can get them from place to place. And like we have this tremendous capability, uh, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, our, our consumer society. Um, but that's posed a lot of problems when it comes to food. You know, Puerto Rico used to be fairly self-sufficient in its food production, producing over 50% of its food on island. Not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. Now, prior to Hurricane Maria in 2017, Puerto Rico was, was producing you know, less than 15% of its food, 85 plus percent of its food was being imported from somewhere else via ship, because obviously Puerto Rico is an island or a plane. And so in the aftermath of a, of a disaster, like a big hurricane hitting, when there's damage to the port and backlog, and you're trying to bring in all this other thing, all these other products, um, what ends up happening is that you very quickly run out of food because there's not enough locally on the island. The island isn't producing enough on its own already to support the people there. And so, you know, you end up in this real crisis scenario. So I think, you know, as, as you look at this, there's, there are so many things that we need to do, of course, to address. And there's, and it's, it's different depending on where you are around the world, right? There's different things that we need to do in, you know, the growing regions in Africa and how we can support them in the face of drought and climate change. 
Uh, you know, there's things that we need to do in Asia that are very different than what we need to do in Central and South America. But I think looking at step one is acknowledging that these things are going to happen. And so how can we start better preparing for them and thinking about the underlying local ecosystem of food and water, especially uh, those two things, especially how do we make sure that we can start to build up that resilience? And it's not, the answer is not stockpiling a bunch of MREs in a warehouse. So when everything breaks down, we can, you know, drop ship people, these prepackaged, you know, barely edible uh, boxes, right? I mean, it's about supporting the local production. It's about making sure that you've got crops and you you think about how you grow things in a way so they can survive. Um, you know, Puerto Ricans are doing this now where they're, you know, they're setting up farms in containers or have the ability to move them. So if a hurricane is coming, they can relocate crops into places so they can, they won't all get destroyed um, when a hurricane hits. So smart solutions, innovative solutions, ideas, start to make sure that you're not reliant on everything from the outside, even in this globalized world that we live in, looking at solutions really in the face of, of these changes is the only way we're really going to chip away at the problem. Otherwise, we're just going to 20 years from now, we're going to look back and we're going to be facing the same thing over and over and over again. So World Central Kitchen's work is we're looking longer term. One of the things that we've done is really started to invest in long-term food security. So in Puerto Rico, as I mentioned, in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, we said, you know, we don't want to come back to Puerto Rico. We want Puerto Rico to be able to feed itself if, if another, God forbid, another disaster hits. So let's start supporting those local farmers. There's local food producers. And we launched what we call our food producer network. We have now over 250, close to 300 grantees on the island. They're producing local food. We have a farmer's market tomorrow, actually, in, in Santorce and in San Juan. We have a farmer's market um, where our local producers are selling goods. We're working on systemic issues around access to markets and selling things and production. And, you know, and, and it's uplifting those smaller purveyors and producers to build that larger scale resilience at the end of the day. So that's what we're looking at. You know, we're early on in this journey. There's a lot of work to do. We certainly haven't, haven't solved everything um, but I think if we start all looking at things through that lens, I, I think we can really have tremendous long-term impact. Great message. Great narrative as we talk about this action track five based on system resilience. It's uh, smart planning and better approach and regionalizing food and its production and investing in those systems to make people have that type of uh, redundancy and safety nets. So Nate, Absolutely. I can't thank you enough for taking time today to, to share such wisdom. Uh, I learned a great deal. I know our listening audience will as well. Yeah, I'm so honored to be here. I think this is such, you know, important topic, important conversation. I'm excited about everything the, the UN Food Systems Summit is bringing to the table and gathering folks together and having these conversations. And, you know, I think there's so much incredible work to be done. Uh, you know, and uh, I think it's so important to learn from others. I'm excited uh, about learning from so many others. I mean, we're just a uh, you know, a drop in the bucket of, of all the amazing things that are happening around the world as, as it relates to food and, and our future. So um, an honor to be part of this dialogue and looking forward to continuing the conversation. Well, keep up the great work and I'll say uh, until next time.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Carbon Connection, a rebroadcast of the Sourcing Matters talk show and the Laying Down Tracks miniseries. We'd like to thank Aaron Niederhelman, host of Sourcing Matters, for letting us share this episode with you. Today's episode was produced by Tanya Marion, alongside Lori Sullivan, Mary Pafford, and Barbara Orsi. Special thanks to Lori Sullivan for sharing this episode with us. Our editor is Tanya Marion, and our executive producer is Jennifer Meyer Schwa. To listen to other shows in the podcast network, visit thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcast. While you're on the site, take a look at the free resources like the Educator's Guide and the Almanac for Kids.